In this episode, you're going to learn the difference between a story and a narrative, how to create a narrative to influence the buying committee, and where AI fits into the process. Welcome back to another episode of the How to Sell podcast. I'm your host, Luigi Presenenzi, and as always, I'm pumped and honored that you've joined us for what will be a very interesting session. But before we introduce this week's guest, I just want to say, if you're a long-time listener, thank you for showing up each and every week and contributing to our community. And if you're a first-time listener, we hope you take away some actionable insights that will help you sell more. Now, the reason why I'm so excited, because this week's guest is going to help me create the narrative where I can finally get Dave off this podcast. Because I've been thinking, why, why are you just pumped? Why are you just excited? You're very singular in that. It's we. We're pumped. We're excited. You're very selfish, mate. Well, yeah. Look, look. for me, Dave, you know, I haven't never really embraced you as being my co-host on this podcast, <laughs> you know. It's like, really? Because oh, I keep goodness. people keep telling me they only show up because they want to hear my voice and not your voice. Well, I just want to thank Melissa for today on the call. She stood up for me and actually shared some concern about the bullying tactics that uh, all in good jest. So just to give some context to those of yeah. you that don't, uh, that are not part of the Growth Forum community, we come together each and every week. We have people from all over the world join our calls and it always starts in a great way where we're kind of, we're roasting the piss out of each other. Yeah. I love that. And the voice that you've just heard is our incredible guest, who's joining us and he's going to talk a bit about not just stories, but narrative. Michael, welcome to the How to Sell podcast. Uh, Thank you, guys. It's great to be here. Yeah. And and just before, you know what, before we jump into the episode, you did say a very Aussie thing, which is taking the piss. Where did you learn that phrase? (laughs) Well, so I think I I was telling you guys this when we were catching up the other day in 2015, I sold 90% of everything I owned. I lived out of two carry-on bags for 500 days around the world. I went digital nomad and I went on a story world tour. So I, I, I spoke and taught and lived in 15 countries. And during that time, actually, I spent a lot of time down under in, in both Sydney and Melbourne. And the interesting thing after that whole journey, and there's so many things that I learned during that time and, and often kind of go back to it. One of the things that I learned came to the conclusion at the end of it all, there's nowhere in the world I'd rather live 365 days a year than California, but there's nowhere in the world I have more soul brothers and soul sisters than Melbourne, Australia. Oh, what a, what a nice thing to say. It's very nice. It's the truth. It's so that's why I'm not, that's, that's, I think how David and I became such fast friends. Like there's oh. something about the water that you guys drink in Melbourne. Like I'm, I'm cut from the same cloth. There, there's something about worldview, mindset, culture. It's one of my favorite places on earth, but boy, is it, is it just bloody cold in the winter and you got no <laughs> insulation and I just, I can't do it. But for a season, yeah, God's country. Mate, yeah, we, we look, we love it. But although yeah. I must admit, Michael, I'm a big fan of California. I love it. I never thought I could live in the West Coast, but I spent a bit of time there and I'm like, you know what? I could get used to this. Um, yeah. I, just, and I, I live in Los Angeles now. I used to, yep. I lived in the Bay Area for quite a while as well. And I work a lot in Silicon Valley. Um, if you can, if you, LA, by the way, is very akin to Australia. So mm-hmm. like, it's a really easy transition for, for Aussies. 
the lifestyles down here. Right. Yeah. And then thankfully it's just a puddle jumper up north. And then there's a there's also quite a vibrant um, you know, tech hub here in LA as well, um, Silicon Beach, where my office is and yeah. um, you know, things are happening here too. No, that's very cool. And and, and maybe yeah. you could tell so you went on a, you went on this massive tour, yeah. fifteen countries. What sort of inspired you in the first place to get involved in stories, narratives? Yeah. Talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, so I got in the game really early. So I've, you know, I started my journey with storytelling and wanting to understand storytelling in 2002. So I'm 20 years in mm-hmm. and it came from the place, actually, my first career uh, right out of uni. It was the late 90s, the birth of the Internet economy. And um, I became what was called a social entrepreneur. Yeah. Right. So those who may not be familiar, it's basically applying business principles to social change. And I was working on the digital divide, which is basically who has access to technology, who doesn't, and embedded in there was poverty and race and and the fundamental notions that genius is equally distributed, but opportunity is not, right? Mm -hmm. So it was leveling the playing field. There were half a million tech jobs going unfilled back then, and I was sort of at the right place at the right time. By the age of 22, I was funded by the Ford and Rockefeller Foundation, two of the biggest foundations in the world. And wow. by the age of 24, epic fail. <laughs> all right, It all came crashing down and a lot of different factors involved. But it was that quarter life crisis when I was 24 back in, I'm going to age myself here, but back in, I think, 2001 now, right? I'm 46 today. It was that moment of picking up the pieces and going, why is it so hard to tell the story of innovation, right? Mm-hmm. Why do so many world-changing ideas get lost in translation? And it was that riddle that I went, I want to figure this out. And I've just been a dog with a bone ever since. Mm. That's interesting. And I love, look, Louis, you mentioned two different words there, right? So story, narrative, often confused often mixed up. Michael, can you lay the foundation here? What's the difference between the two? Yeah, so this is a critical distinction that 99% of most storytelling books, storytelling workshops, the things that that most of, of your community and listeners, what you've come across around storytelling, people are not making this distinction. When you make this distinction, this is the 10x force multiplier for influence and persuasion. So let me break it down this way. Uh, And let me, by the way, first presage by saying, look, as a general expression, we say story and that's fine, right? Let's get our, let me get my story straight. We need a story here, Mm. right? Like, oh, what's the competing storyline? It's all good. Use it interchangeably. Okay. I I don't mean to be, you know, some, 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 some pissy little nerd about it, but (laughs) Now, now let's be the pissy nerd. And here's the <laughs> distinction that everybody needs to understand. And it goes like this. A story is a specific event. A story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm. A story is about something that happened or a story is about something that's going to happen. But it's a packet of information. It's a closed loop. And as salespeople, you tell stories all the time. Yeah. You might tell the story of, oh, let me tell you about this cut, this other client that we work with. And here's where they were at. Here's what was mm-hmm. going on with them. 
here's what was standing in their way. And then they were able to overcome that and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Or, oh, let me tell you the story, you know, of, of what, of, of this story of, of, uh, there's a story of like what is happening in the industry or in this category. Right. So we tell stories all the time. Great. Nothing wrong with stories. The challenge is though, we are drowning in an infinite sea of stories. Why? Also because of social media, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody has a story. Everybody has a story worth telling. We're telling them all day long, you know, and so on. So here's the distinction. So if story is an anecdote, narrative is the concept. Narrative Mm -hmm. is rhetoric. Narrative is, because think about it this way, narrative actually does not have a clear beginning, middle, and end. Um, it's an open loop. Let me give you an example of this. And to 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 the Australian contingent listening, please forgive me, but it's it's a great reference point. Let's talk about the American dream. Okay. So the American dream is a narrative. Yeah. Because it's this idea or core, it's a big theme that then has a few underlying concepts. So let's real quick jam on this. What are the the concepts that are part of the American dream? When I say American dream, what what associations do you have? It's like infinite freedom, unity. Yeah, right? Freedom, infinite unity. opportunity, freedom, um you know, reinvention, doesn't matter where you come from, you yeah. can come here. Um you know, there's a meritocracy, like there's a lot of, you know, for some people it's the 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 house and the white picket fence is part mm. of the American dream. So there's a lot of different associations. Also in our country right now, there are debates going yeah. on around the American dream. And is it still accessible to enough people? Or how do we help more people access their share of the American dream? Yeah. But across political parties and all the dysfunctions of our politics in America, the American dream still means something Mm. and it means something not just in america but even around the world right so there are many you know i was just with with the with one of the product teams at atlassian up in san francisco a couple weeks ago but they're also here doing business in america because of the american dream right there's a lot of new of technology companies in australia and other places in the world who understand if we really want to go global okay Part of that's the American dream. So on and on. So, so the American dream is this narrative or overarching concept. But now we all have our individual stories of the American dream. Let me give you mine. Mm. My dad is a first generation immigrant who was born and raised in the bush of Africa. Wow. In what was Rhodesia at the time, today Zimbabwe, 30 miles from the border with Mozambique. And he got a Fulbright scholarship to the States, studied, went to MIT, became a chemical engineer. He actually came over on the Queen Mary and, um, you know, with like that classic story with a couple hundred dollars in his pocket. Mm. And my dad naturalized as a U.S. citizen in the early 1970s. He still gets teary eyed (laughs) when the national anthem comes on. It means more to my father to be an American and the refuge of the opportunity that came from him because we were Eastern European Jews in the bush of Africa who basically had escaped from, you know, Eastern Europe amidst all those things and just had shown, you know, it was just a place where my family landed. Yeah. And my, for my dad to be able to go to there, to America and the future that he built for himself and his family and so on. Right. So my dad gets more teary eyed than my mom who was born and raised in upstate New York. So that's my American dream story. Mm-hmm. 
right? That's this individualized experience and event. It's actually even my father's, okay? But then, you know, it's connected to me. And if I were to then share more of my American dream story was growing up, actually, I grew up in Switzerland as a kid for the first nine years and was like a third culture kid. So we were like the expats living in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And it was only when I was nine that we moved to Los Angeles. And, but I'm absolutely an American and a proud American and so on. But even my experience of being an American has been one of like going from the outsider to becoming the insider. Okay. So let me wrap this up with one last piece for everyone listening is if the narrative is a Christmas tree, yep. stories are the ornaments that you hang on the Christmas tree. Right. And, but the narrative is what frames and defines the conversation. You want to define the narrative, control the narrative, change the narrative, reframe the narrative. Mm. And that is where the battle is truly won or lost. And we're usually blind to the fact that things are being set or defined at the narrative level. And that's what positioning is, differentiation, mm. you know, especially when you're trying to really, really create the appeal V or an angle about your company, about your product, about your service, about your niche and so on. But this well. You know, there's not too many times, Michael, I've interviewed hundreds of people over the number of years, but the, what you've just shared with me kind of, I, I've had a massive light bulb go off, right? So this, for me, this is this is worth it. Dave, even if we don't publish this because, you know, because of your <laughs> ugly head, uh, but this, <laughs> this is absolutely worth it. And I just want to ask Michael. Louis, I appreciate that, but I just want you to know, okay, hold on a second here. I'm team David, all right? So (laughs) I don't know what's going on here. Whatever group therapy you guys need to sort through. I know you guys are old mates here, but I'm, I'm, or, you know, actually, I should say I'm team Fastuka. That sounds a lot more fun than team David. I definitely team Fastuka. My stories have the ability to influence you. I'll have you on my team very soon. But hey, I actually would have, would love to get your input on this because I think, yeah. you know, you people listening to this, um, yeah. I think and this is all great, right? I'm, I'm hearing it. Um, conceptually, the narrative is a conceptual component. It's well, the overarching part, the positioning. But in some cases in my role, I'm, I'm an individual contributor. I'm trying to influence buying committees and business cases and yeah. there's economy happening. I can only control the story. Right, I'd love to sort of get your insight into if I am that person and I have an opportunity, and and as we know now, mid market. I mean, you've worked at brands like Meta, right? Huge brands, Atlassian. You mentioned um, you, the data shows you know nine to fifteen stakeholders involved in a decision making process, and they've all got conflicting needs, priorities, and you're just trying to sell your product or service in there. How do you create that? that message how do you create that story that can help get buy-in both internally and externally such a great question and what you're speaking to is exactly the reality that so many of us face which is you are selling a complex b2b Mm. technical product or solution in a highly matrixed environment yeah and what that means is there actually are lots of competing narratives colliding. 
uh, in the sense of, um, I mean, I, I do a lot of work with product builders. So even just inside organizations, you talk to product versus engineering versus UX versus, you know, client or customer success and like version control. Everybody's in a different version, you know, of the story or the narrative and much less the version control when you talk to executives and the narrative that they're in, which is usually three or five years ahead in the future versus all the way down to an IC and the story that they're in, you know, has an expert, it's, it's, mm. it's old, it's dated They're you know, like they're, they're still working on a story that's, that, you know, that's, that's, that's expired, so to speak. So this is part of the challenge right now. And to use kind of technology terms, it's having a single source of truth Yeah, at the narrative level so that people are singing from the same song sheet and so on. So that's the context. Now I want to get mm. to your question, which is, um, and, and, and if you haven't picked up on this so far, right, and, and forgive me, I've got the gift of gab, so please just jump in anytime because I can just go on and on and on on this stuff. I like the sound of my own voice. Hopefully I keep it interesting for, for you and your listeners. Um, but the but but I'm a first principles guy. I'm a philosopher. And, and this is really important with working with story because story is about making meaning, making sense in meaning of presenting reality and making sense in meaning of aspirational reality. And that, that's why it has so much power and why people desperately need the stories right now because mm. we're all trying to make sense of, holy crap, the fundamentals are upside down. So yeah. much has changed. There's all this disruption and so on. So coming to your core question, um, it, it, so here's the idea that I want to introduce and then I'm gonna, I want to hear from you guys your, your reaction to this. So from a narrative perspective, one of the things that's often, I'll put it to you this way. Uh, if you want to um, create shared agreements, mm. don't make your audience wrong. Oh, okay. okay. So, and actually, and here's why I bring this up. So often we are unconsciously, the way that we've been taught to frame sales, yeah. problem solution, actually is making our audience defensive mm. and l- let me let me explain this right so if, if you're now here's the thing if you're selling widgets or cupcakes or consumer packaged goods yeah. don't listen to anything i'm saying it doesn't freaking matter a 30 60 second tv spot will sell that product it's fine yeah. but if you're selling a complex technical b2b product or solution what it means is you're solving for something that one is an ambiguous problem space. Two, doesn't always have shared problem definition yep. inside that organizational system. And three, your audience is complicit, if not responsible for the problem. And here you go coming in and going, look, there's this problem, right? Which i.e. they hear you're wrong, you're bad, you're stupid, but don't worry, I have the answer I know exactly what we need to do to fix you or to fix this situation. And so that's a very big presumptive leap. Unless you already have that person bought in as your champion and who immediately mm. gets it, right? You're going to face resistance and or your champion who totally gets it. You've built the rapport. They're working in a highly matrixed environment where they're going to go and say, oh, here's what we need to do. And everybody yeah. else around them are like, whoa, hold on a second. 
So let's unpack this dynamic. What do you guys think about this as a as a as a dynamic kind of the way that I'm naming these distinctions of what I think is going on inside yeah. a lot of a lot of organizations today? This is amazing. And Dave, just before we jump in, like Michael, this is fucking amazing. I tell you why, right? Because I've got so many so many thoughts going yeah. on. I'm I'm bringing it back to a deal, and I only spoke about this with Dave. Dave and I were on a project, and I was I brought something out of my of my um. My archives, and I say archives because it's literally a it's it's a piece of paper, right? And I know yeah. that it was a business case. It was my first ten million dollar deal, right? With a huge global brand, it actually had to go to New York for sign off. Um, huge global brand, and one thing that I just had this realization uh, listening to you now, the narrative in the first in the first paragraph because we wrote the business case, right? And what's interesting about this, the business case that we wrote for change. I wrote the business case, but it had the project owner and the project sponsor was the two people in the business, right? Um, and at no time did I say, this is your problem. We co-created the scope of work. But the first paragraph, and I only re- re- recognized because I read it this morning and after hearing what you, what you were saying, the first paragraph referenced the narrative which was driven from the CEO. So the narrative was the why change piece. Yeah, we referenced that. I only just picked this up. And this was 13 years ago, by the way, and you've just helped me pick this up. So the project will integrate the mission and vision set by, that's a top line, right? And the rest is the story on how we're going to get there. We just should have included that. I've just had this massive aha moment. I like that process doesn't change, right? And we often like... like I'm guilty of this. You, you, you think yourself as the hero that you're going to solve the problem, mm. but unknowingly or now knowingly, because after listening to this, you should know that you may be potentially talking down on the prospects. You know, they, like you mentioned, Michael, they may be the problem within the business. So you say that I can mm. fix you. Um, and if you prospected to them and they've willingly jumped on the call, it may feel like you're attacking them in a, in a light way. Correct. Um, so that's yeah, that, that is really interesting perspective on that, and uh, hopefully it helps you know you listening think about the way you approach that call that you have with someone, that prospect, and how you position your language and the story around that. Yeah, but but Dave, I think the other thing, the reason why this is resonating with me so much, because if I reflect upon the deals that went south, you know, it was often because I was saying this is your problem. And I do I do a lot of research and I do a lot of due diligence to say, hey, I've got something incredible for you. Like, look at this dossier of information. They're like, you know, this is a reflection of my job, mate. You, you've basically, so there's that backup behavior kicking in. And then if we look at the flip side, the deals that were just incredibly seamless were the ones where there was no relationship tension. I was enabling them through that conceptual component of saying, I can see where you wanted to go and I've got a bit of insight on what's not happening that c- could enable you to get to that desired state, right? And I think this, I don't know if you've ever read the book, Michael, The Challenger Sale. It's a, it's a book. It's oh, been sure. a great book, yeah. right? And it, it, it created whole opposite opinion. People are like, I fucking hate it or I love it. And I think people misunderstood the book because the book was talking about you got to challenge your buyer and tell them what they're doing wrong. Yeah. And for me, that's not what I took away from it, right? It was... It's absolutely not telling them what they're doing wrong. It's sharing that level of insight to say, look at what is possible, right? Mm-hmm. So 
absolutely love this. Now, just want to build upon this. Yeah, you please. mentioned that whole narrative, the concept, the story, etc. So, if we can take it that one degree, that one step further in understanding, this is not just about influencing a buying committee external, but if you're also listening to this, going, "Hey, I want to influence internal. How can I now adapt what you've told us about creating that internal narrative to get internal buy-in and, and engagement?" Yeah. And this is actually an area that I spend probably 80% of our time, both, you know, over the last 20 years, much of my work has been professional services and, and consulting to executives in the biggest tech companies, both the executive and their teams. Uh, and we've also always been teaching the methods. So, and in the last year and a half, we have started productizing the IP and democratizing these methods. So this mm -hmm. is the, we, we have courses that anybody listening, if you're interested, you can go check us out on Maven. We have a course called Narrative Influence mm -hmm. and um, Narrative Change and so on. Anyways, so let's, let's talk about this from the internal buy-in perspective. And the, so building on what we just talked about, and, 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 and you, you, you did a brilliant job of connecting the dots, which is what you want to do is sell the possibility mm -hmm. The opportunity you want to connect to aspiration and motivation. What's the promised land? What's the dream? Where are people trying to get to? And then what stands in the way? So instead of problem solution, which is minus plus, yeah. you just reverse the polarity. It's possibility obstacle, right? It's plus minus. So when you reverse that polarity, it shifts the dynamic uh, and how people are going to react and respond exactly as you said, you become their champion, their act, their advocate, their enabler for where they're trying to get to. And what you're doing as a salesperson, your job is to tell a love story about the future. Oh, I love that one. Right. And that, <laughs> right. And, and when you do that, right, that's what draws people forward because who doesn't love a love story? Exactly. It's who can, who can say no to a love story? So that's the trick rhetorically. Just riffing off that one sentence, then, yeah. it's, you know, I, I associate that with, you know, it's been more emotion, right? You're having that emotion, mm. ooh, right? Like a love story, it's emotion, right? So rather yeah. than thinking of just pure, you know, black and white numbers and sense, it's, you know, if you can pull on that emotion, okay, so what is this result going to do for you emotionally in your career for the business? That can often yeah. help the situation a lot more. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think Dave, my takeaway from that is you, we reference this concept a lot, right? But it doesn't matter if you're influencing internal or external, people buy the outcome, right? They buy, the, they, they buy that ultimate aspirational yes. outcome. And if we're able to help them see a path to get there, then they're motivated to take action right it's when they are the you're right it's when there is that element of conflict because it's that minus negative all that you know minus plus kind of concept so for me i'm looking down because i've literally got a page of notes on my phone here going this is i'm gonna to have to listen to this again and again because there's some key takeaways there's been moments where i built my business case because i've been really big believer for the past 15 years yes B2B selling, you have to build a business case. The proposal is irrelevant. If the business case isn't in there, it's irrelevant. And after 15 years of doing this, I'm actually going to have to go back into there and put put the theory behind why it 
works the way it does. Like this has been a massive aha moment for me, mate, because I'm, I'm sitting there going, oh. I can see why these work. For a while, I just thought it was a process. Now I understand there's actually some psychology behind it. It's first principles and it's especially... So let, I, and I want to keep building on your point of around internal buy-in and making the business case because I, yeah, I, I, you know, and you'll notice about me, I'm, I'm uh, sometimes I'll take the long way around, you know, it's just it's 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 the it's the it's the blessing and the curse of being a rock on tour. So, um, but but let's unpack this a little bit more, and, and I want to unpack it the following way, which is um, storytelling is decision making. Mm. Storytelling is a framework for decision-making. If you want to become actually better at decision-making, become better at storytelling. If you want to become better at storytelling, become better at decision-making. And let me unpack this a little bit more because when you are building internal buy-in, when you are creating a business case, all you are doing is communicating about making Mm -hmm. decisions. Right. And and the decisions that we are trying to make, well, and here, let me let me give you a few examples of this. Part of the decisions, it goes like this. One is, and, and this happens when you're, you know, you have an executive presentation or you're giving an, an you know, you're going through a, a quarterly business review or whatever are the different internal rituals and cadences of your organization. Could be a town yeah. hall, you name it. So part of what you're doing in a presentation. And especially working with a lot of um, product-led growth type teams, I've really learned and seen this, right? And um, you mentioned Meta. Since 2016, we've worked with 15 product and organizational divisions, building the narratives that go in front of Mark Zuckerberg and the rest of the M team. So this is a place where I really learned how to like build these yeah. things and see them have to perform at the billion-person scale, at that level yeah. of complexity, okay? So in that environment, so here's what's going on. When you are presenting... Um, number one, what you're doing is, well, you're, you are narrating the journey, the story of, well, these were the decisions that we made previously. And here's what happened. Here's now the decisions that we are making or want to make. And here's what we think is going to happen or what we think we're going to find out by making these decisions. And then there's these other decisions downstream that we don't quite know how to make yet, but this is why the things that we're doing now or today, running these experiments or these tests are going to help us gather data and evidence that's going to bring us closer to the to being able to then solve the next level decisions that are coming down the road. Mm. That's what an executive yeah. wants to hear and understand is the logic model what decisions were made and what happened? What decisions are we making and what's our hypothesis and the assumptions for why we're making these decisions and what happens next? And then what are the next level decisions that are going to get us to where we want to get to? It's all decision making. And storytelling is a logic model. Uh, I'll, I'll offer this and then I'm, I'm going to shut up. I want to hear you guys on this. So story. think of this as the three C's of storytelling. Circumstance, right? choice, consequence circumstance choice consequence rinse and repeat yeah. so circumstance where are we what's the context set the scene right and okay all right now that i'm oriented all right ultimately there's a choice or a set of choices obstacles challenges dilemmas scenarios okay there's choices to make 
you're helping to inform how we make choices and then it's action reaction. So based mm-hmm. on that choice, then what happened or based on that choice, what we think is going to happen. And once you make a choice, there's a consequence. You're back at the beginning. You're in a new circumstance. Yeah. It's a sto- It's like video games. It's yeah. a storytelling matrix of, of reality or choose your own adventure book. It never ends. But this is what you are doing as an effective salesperson. Yeah. You're narrating this journey around decision-making and in an environment, by the way, that is about managing risk and volatility, yeah. managing uncertainty, and in an environment where people are like, we can't fail in this environment. Yeah. So you're trying to reduce perception of risk on what is a very uncertain, um, like really high, um, like like a very very high level of complexity to the 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 outcomes that your customer or stakeholders are trying to achieve, and it's your job to be the guide that can take them through the desert and get them to the promised land. Mate, you, this is so powerful because you're absolutely right that element of choice, like I'm looking at those three C's and you're right. Like even when people don't want to make that choice to move forward, it's our role to then help them say, okay, what would be the consequence of that action is what's the cost of inaction? Like, are you okay with what that choice could represent for you in six to 12 months? How does that get you closer to your narrative? And I, Again, for me, I'm not meaning to pump your tires, but this is amazing. Like this, 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 <laughs> this content's incredible. Can that become a little bit condescending, right? Um, in relation to can what become when condescending you're, when you're talking to someone and they're they're a bit unsure, right? And they're thinking, do I do this? Do I not? And then you're you're challenging them, yeah. right? Which could put them on the back foot. Mm. I'll say, so what do you? Do? So what's going to happen if you don't do nothing? You almost like. Yeah, depending on your tone, tonality, this can that come across aggressive? You know, you got to be careful there. I think. Yeah, but I, I don't think it's a matter of going. You know that, that question. I actually want to flip that and ask to consider the impact. Like consider the impact of what this could, what this choice could mean for the business. Like getting them, because the best way for me, from a sales perspective is not to tell them the answer, is get them to think, mm. right? So the minute they start thinking, exactly. they're like, well, we haven't really thought about that. We're not prepared. Like you just said it, Michael, you know, that that risk that we're not prepared to fail. This is not something that we've been thinking about. So maybe we yeah. now need to think about the choices we're about to make because <laughs> it could mean this could become a risk. Exactly. No, David, I think you're bringing up a really great point, and it's it's a critical one, which is all about intention mm-hmm. that then is reflected or we hear in tonality and in that they're, you know, from a relationship building and trust building perspective, we're always asking ourselves what, you know, or even in storytelling terms, you know, if we think of ourselves as an ensemble cast, even the three of us here, right? As if we're each of us are three characters, we each have our own motivations as characters, mm. right? As 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 we've gotten to know each other, you've learned I'm fueled by chocolate. You know, that's part of my character, and you know, and I have a second fridge for chocolate. I used to traffic in kilos of it. It's my signature. You know, it's my vice of choice. It's my signature gift: chocolate, chocolate, chocolate. You know, you've learned about my my travels and adventures mm-hmm. and so like, we each have different 
you know, we're characters and we have different motivations. And the question that's in the mind of an audience from a sales perspective is the following, which is simply the way I, I, I like to frame it is, is this following binary. Are you just trying to sell me more shit? <laughs> or do you give yeah. a shit about my world, where I am and where I'm trying mm. to get to? Empathy. Right. So how do you communicate that intention and motivation yeah. genuinely? Like I really give a crap. Um, and so from that place, exactly as you said, um, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Louis is is being sitting in that coaching seat. And the key is to not be prescriptive or to um, sort of force a yeah. conclusion because at the end of the day, they're the ones who have to live and own the story. Yeah. It's their choice, not not mine, not yours. Right? They have agency, yeah. but it's helping them orient and name and distinguish mm -hmm. the things that like most of us were kind of drowning because again, we're swimming in these seas of stories. We don't know which way is up, down, left or right. Is this the end of the beginning or the beginning of the end? Yeah, like, yeah. where are we right now? It, it, you bring up a really good point, right? That from that intentional component, for me, that's the foundation of great selling. Yeah. Because if I have that intention of, I really do want to help you get to that aspirational state, my job's an enabler. I'm a coach and a guide. And sometimes, no matter how good of a job I've done, you're just not ready to take that step. And with mm -hmm. the right intention, I can say, that's okay. I can still guide you. Yeah. I can still educate you. And we're absolutely going to build on this relationship. And even if you don't pay me, that's okay, right? Because that is what good intention is all about. Yeah. And I find that those are the types of relationships that have yielded yeah. the biggest return for me, you know, not being so focused on the transactional outcome and saying, just because you might not be at that right step yet, I shouldn't just stop, go do what I need to do and come back and say, are you ready to buy? Because it's very transactional, right? So for me, Michael, this has been an incredible episode. And usually our episodes go for 25 minutes. Um, oh, shit. I could literally, <laughs> like, we could, we, could, no, no, we could keep going and yeah, maybe we can yeah, yeah. ice you. Yeah, I was just going to say, Dave, maybe we could entice Michael to be a guest in our community um, because your slips your uh, bar of chocolate. Yeah, just, yeah, we we get we'll we'll do some tro um, chocolate trafficking, Michael. We've got some <laughs> chocolate that we know. You know exactly the brick that I'm looking for. <laughs> yes, um, they sell they sell them in kilo bricks, <laughs> and um, yeah, Monsieur Truff, um to the to, to folks listening is is actually one of my favorite chocolatiers, specifically in Melbourne, that make the world's best John Duya, which is kind of oxymoronic because John Duya is is really a specialty that comes from Torino, Italy. It uses hazelnuts from the Piedmont region, um, but it's a certain process that, as I was jokingly sharing with the guys, is sexual chocolate. Mm. It's it's the turn turn the lights down low kind of chocolate. So um, yeah, it'll be part of our ongoing romance. Um, you guys get me a couple bricks of that, and you know I'll I'll do just about anything. Uh, oh we yeah. Oh we know we know there we know uh, we know how to get that sexual tension going. You know my language of love. So yeah, you know my language of love. Um, can I leave with one last thing just to kind of you know. Like, a plant a seed with everybody is let's let's contextualize everything we've been talking about 
in the context of AI. So generative AI as a disruptive force that's going to redefine the future of work, that's redefining companies' go-to-market strategies, that's redefining how companies think about IP, that think about how they're doing what they're doing. And it's starting to impact all of us with what we're selling and how we're selling. Mm. And I want to I want to connect the dots on something that you brought up, Louis, around around transactional versus relational. So so here's here's the last point, which is um, that so generative AI uh, knowledge is dead, wisdom is queen. Yeah. What does this mean? Right. We now live in a world of infinite knowledge at our fingertip. And it's structured knowledge. This ain't just typing a query into Google. You know, like Chad GPT actually conveys very coherent narrative in its ability to structure its thinking in a clear, concise, compelling way. So we now need to be more, we need to be smarter or more valuable or distinctive than the machines. Because otherwise, mm-hmm. what's our job as humans? So if knowledge is dead, wisdom is queen. What is wisdom? Well, wisdom are the stories that you tell. And the way that we tell our stories is it comes out of the experiences that we've had. This is why the best salespeople often, right? Like, hey, like I've I've put in a few reps. I've got a few miles of tread Mm -hmm. on these tires, right? So it's, it's taking a look at the past experiences that you've had and the experiences of the other customers or clients that you've worked with and your ability to tell stories out of that, now you're offering people wisdom, perspective, Mm -hmm. or point of view. And that's the heart of relationship versus transactional. Well, can't I just go get the SOP? Can't I just get the like Mm 12-step engineering schematic that I can get out of a generative AI tool and like, like that's flood, you know, flooding yeah. the zone. You can't have this generic copy paste type of content. You need insight. You need perspective, and that you know, and that wisdom and empathy is how you build these long-standing trusted advisor type relationships. And you know what? What a way to wrap this up, Michael. Because everything that you've described in that wrap up is what we're all about, right? We're about helping. Yes, helping sales professionals really become seen as that trusted advisor because when they're seen as that trusted advisor, when they're seen as that consultant, they're getting a seat at the table. And for me, when you've got a seat at the table, you're not selling to someone, you've become a partner and you're collaborating with them. So I, I've had a lot of fun. I've had there's a, I've got a lot of notes. I'm going to go back. I'm going to jump on your site. Um, I'm going to now probably spend the next few weeks going down an Alice in Wonderland type scenario um, but what's the best way for our audience to find, engage, read? Where should they go? Yeah, yeah. A couple of things. So one is uh, check out my latest book, Story 10X. Uh, you can find it on Amazon in the Kindle, Audible, and print versions. Um, you also can find me on LinkedIn. So just look me up, Michael Margolis, Storied. Send me a connection request. Just put in a note in there and let me know that you, um, you know, you discovered discovered me through through Growth Forum, um, and um, 
And then you can also find me on maven.com. This is where we're doing our cohort-based mm -hmm. online courses. So we have narrative influence. That's a five-week sprint method. We also have narrative change, which is a two-parter. But narrative influence, the five-week sprint, is specifically focuses on storytelling ROI and how to build a narrative using a, a three-step framework called SFB, which anchors to Aristotle's three proofs of rhetoric. You have to see it. You have to feel it in order to believe it. Um, so yeah, you can find me all sorts of different places, but just reach out and connect. And then to the community, I just want to give a shout out to you guys. Um, so just as um, you guys have gotten a lot out of this, um, I am getting so much value out of out of what you guys are doing and being a proud member of Growth Forum IO. So you guys are badass. Um, it's invaluable. Like the way that you think about building the playbook sequentially, we're doing a lot right now and changing our B2B, like go to market. And so I'm, you know, I'm sitting, me and my team, we're sitting down, taking notes, going through the worksheets, like walking through, you know, the principles and the practices wax on wax off. Right. So I just want you guys to know, man, I'm in your dojo too. And, uh, and grateful. We love that. Have you ever wondered how fast-growing companies 2, 3, and even 10x their annual revenue? They have something more than just a sales plan. They have a sales operating system that is the engine that drives the revenue function for their business. If you need more qualified leads, if you're struggling to nurture deals, if you need to close more deals faster, or even if you need to hire A-plus salespeople, Click the link in this podcast episode or visit growforum.io forward slash apply to have a chat with Luigi and myself to see how we can help you. Now back to the show. Well, we went over quite a lot on that episode, but it was too good to, to cut log off. No, cracking, cracking, cracking episode. Let's, uh, let's wrap it up, right? How would you package this up? And how would you approach the buying committee based on everything you just learned? Yeah, I think a couple of key takeaways, right? If you think about the whole concept of the narrative, it's very aspirational. So I think the best way to take what we've learned or what you've learned today is really think about your business case. Really think about whatever proposal that you're sending out to a buyer, does it capture in the very first two sentences the aspirational outcome that narrative that your buyers are trying to achieve. And if you haven't, go away, start thinking about adding that into the early stage of your of your proposal. Next step is the story is the tactical way in which you're going to help them get there. So that's for me, the big, big takeaway, right? In order to influence a buying committee, we've got to help them see that this is a practice, this is an approach that it will allow them to get to that, to that aspirational state. And we've spoke about this time and time again, Dave. People don't buy what you do. They buy the outcome you help them achieve. And this is the key. This is an intentional focus on saying, right, I'm not here to sell a product or service to you. I'm here to help understand and help you get clarity. If you've already got clarity over that future state, great. And if you don't, I'm here to get to work with you to build that narrative around what's possible help get clarity over the problems that you're experiencing that'll prevent you from getting there and build a roadmap that shows you how to get there. And that, again, for me, everything that we spoke about today, you can wrap up 
into that sales methodology, that our job is about enabling, guiding people and helping the buying committee arrive at that point of decision. And that's why everything that I heard today just reinforced and validated the sales practices that we execute and that we preach.